It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Shelby, North Carolina. There's a good chance you've heard about the disappearance of Asia Degree. She's a nine-year-old girl who went missing from her home on February 14th, 2000, and has never been found. When it happened, Asia's name was all over the news, but as time went on and the trails went cold, there's been less and less coverage on her case. It's been 22 years now, but her parents have never given up hope that their little girl is still out there somewhere. Asia's case has become one of those true crime cases that the members of the elite squad known as the I'm Gonna Find Out unit have taken under their wing. They followed the case up, down, and sideways, trying to figure out if they can find that one clue that's missing that might solve her case. Today and next week, we're going to go through everything we know, what questions those facts open up, and what potential answers those questions might lead to. With that, small talk sucks, so let's dive in. As I mentioned earlier, nine-year-old Asia Degree went missing on Valentine's Day in 2000. But to understand her case a little better, let's talk about who exactly she was as a person and the days leading up to her disappearance. Asia was a rule follower. She was the kind of kid that other parents could point to and say, see, she's listening. See, she does her homework. See, she minds her manners. Based on the hundreds of articles I've read through, Asia was as well-behaved as they come. Obviously, she was a child and kids will be kids, but I haven't seen a single report that she ever got in trouble at school. She rarely, if ever, missed a day and she got good grades. And she didn't just get good grades because her parents wanted her to. She held herself to a pretty high standard on her own. She had a lot of friends. Her teachers loved her. She played local sports, went to church on Sundays, was really close with her family, and got along well with her brother, which is a feat in and of itself when you consider the fact that the two spent a lot of time together on their own. According to the Shelby Star, the two were latchkey kids who would ride the school bus home together and do homework until their parents got home. They even shared a room and still managed to get along. Now that you've got a good idea as to who Aisha was, let's look at the weekend prior to her disappearance. According to the Shelby Star, Friday, February 11th, 2000 was the start of a long weekend. There was no school that day, so Aisha and her brother went down the street to their aunt's house for the day. Both their aunt and their grandmother lived within walking distance. When I say her family was close, I mean close, close. 
That evening, the two had basketball practice at their elementary school, so they got some energy out there before finally heading home for the evening. According to the outlet, Aisha's basketball coach said that she was her usual fun-filled self and that it was a good practice. There was nothing out of the ordinary. The following day, Saturday, was game day. Aisha's basketball game was first, and it didn't go well. Aisha wound up fouling out of the game. The Shelby Star reports that it was the team's first loss of the season. Aisha expected a lot out of herself, so it's no surprise that she was upset about the loss. She and the other girls on the team cried, and in the midst of being upset, Aisha told her mom that her leg was hurting. Her mom told her that her leg was fine and to take a walk, so she did. And Aisha was, in fact, fine. I've seen reports that even mention that Aisha admitted to her mom that her leg wasn't really hurt. This might seem like an odd thing to mention or even to have to fact check, but the loss of that game has been something that the public has analyzed over and over again, specifically the fact that Aisha's mom told her that her leg didn't hurt. Some people have argued that that's a big deal and it sounds off, but honestly, I have three kids and they have each told me that something hurt when it didn't at least 267 times in their lives, and it usually coincided with being upset about something else. Moving on. Aisha's brother's game was right after hers, and by the start of his, it was like nothing had happened. The outlet reports that Aisha was in the stands laughing and joking with everyone else and having a good time. Once again, Aisha was back to her normal happy self. Following the two games, the Charlotte Observer reports that Aisha continued her good time over at her cousin's house. According to the outlet, the kids all pretended to be dancers on Soul Train and even watched Showtime at the Apollo, which was a great show, by the way, and from what I can remember, it came on pretty late at night, so all the boxes for a solid childhood Saturday night were checked. On Sunday, February 13th, Aisha and the kids woke up and she and her family went to church like they always did. This Sunday was the one right before Valentine's Day, and her grandma told the Shelby star that Aisha was really excited about the Valentine's Day candy that she'd gotten. After the service, her family stuck together and all headed over to her aunt's house for lunch. After lunch, Aisha was tired. The Charlotte Observer said that it was because she'd had that sleepover the night before, so around 6.30 p.m. she laid down for a late nap. That nap didn't last long because one hell of a storm came through and the lightning and thunder woke her up. Once she got up, she went and watched some TV with the family until one of two things happened. Either she went to bed or the power went out. Aisha did go to bed that night and the power did go out, but I've seen conflicting reports as to which one came first. According to the Shelby Star, just before 9 p.m., there was a car accident somewhere nearby that knocked out the electricity. I've looked for any articles about a car wreck causing a power outage and even looked on historical crime maps but couldn't find anything. That being said, it's a known fact that the power did in fact go out and it wasn't just Aisha's house. It was a widespread issue, so the power going out isn't anything sinister as far as what's going to happen in the next few hours. Most of the reports I've seen said that Aisha and her brother went to bed at 8 p.m. It was a school night, so 8 p.m. sounds about right. That being said, I did find an article from the Shelby Star that said her dad had gone to her room around midnight to tell her that she needed to go to bed. That's the only article I've seen that said she was up past 8 p.m., but it's necessary to mention since it's out there and you'll probably run across it if you decide to deep dive this yourself. 
According to the Shelby Star, the power came back on at Asia's house around 12.30 a.m., and the last time she was seen by anyone, specifically her father, was two hours after that at 2.30 a.m. when he went in to check on her. So we're into February 14th now, Valentine's Day, which was also her parents' anniversary. I haven't found any definitive reports on what prompted her dad to check on her at 2.30 a.m., but I've seen a few things mentioned here and there. I broke my Reddit rule for research, and one report that I can't officially verify mentioned that her dad had fallen asleep on the couch watching TV that night, woke up around 2.30, checked on the kids, and went to bed. I want to stress that I cannot 100% validate this, but it seems like a pretty normal thing to do. Another discussion I've seen on some mainstream media outlets was that the power came back on at 2.30 a.m., which woke him up, and he checked on the kids before going back to bed. But if the power came back on at 12.30, that's unlikely. One completely plausible explanation was that Aisha's dad was just being a dad. I know that if I'm up late, I check on my kids before I go to bed. My children are 6, 8, and 14, and I still do it. Aisha and her brother were 9 and 10, and some people feel like it's weird that he checked on them, but frankly, I feel like it's pretty normal. Bottom line here is that at 2.30 a.m., Aisha's dad saw both her and her brother asleep in their beds. Now, around that time, the Shelby Star reports that Aisha's brother saw her get up to use the bathroom and come back to bed. She was wearing a white nightgown with red trim and a teddy bear on the front. Much like every other detail of this case, I've also seen reports that say he'd seen her get up to use the bathroom with no reports of her coming back. And I've seen reports that say he just heard her bed squeak around that time and didn't think anything of it, that she must have just been tossing and turning in her sleep. Fast forward to 5.45 a.m. when Aisha's mom told Jet Magazine that her alarm went off. Generally, she got the kids up at 6.30 to get them ready for school, but because the power had gone out the night before, the kids couldn't take their baths, so she was getting them up early so they could wash up before heading out. According to the outlet, she went to Aisha in her brother's room, saw her brother sleeping under the covers, and called his name to wake him up. As he was getting out of bed, Aisha's mom looked over to her bed, but she wasn't in it. She asked him where Aisha was, and he said he didn't know. At this point, there's a little panic, but I mean, she was nine. She could have gotten up early and gone to eat some breakfast. She could have gotten up for whatever reason and gone to sleep on the couch. So her mom went around the house to try and figure out where she was. But Aisha wasn't anywhere. I mean, she even checked the closets. Obviously, she's in full panic mode now. She told Jet Magazine that she immediately went back to her bedroom, told her husband she couldn't find Aisha, and threw on some clothes. Together, they checked the car, Aisha's grandmother's house, which was right across the street, her aunt's house down the road, but there was still no sign of Aisha. Around 6.30 a.m., Aisha's father called 911 while her mother went into the street and started screaming Aisha's name. That woke everyone up, and within minutes, damn near the entire neighborhood was out calling for her. I've seen different reports on the response time for the 911 call, but the police must have been right around the corner because they got there in a matter of minutes and they took her disappearance very seriously. They blocked everything off, started searching, and even brought in canines. But according to the outlet, the dogs never picked up on Aisha's scent. From the outside looking in, the fact that they couldn't pick up on Aisha's scent raised a lot of red flags for people, but as we know from earlier, thunder and lightning had woken Aisha up from her nap, and it had rained cats and dogs that night. 
I pulled up the historical weather data and it wasn't just your normal drizzle. It was a full-blown storm with wind gusts up to 36 miles an hour. While the whole world was out calling Aisha's name and searching every inch of the surrounding area, police were looking inside to see if anything seemed off. And something did. Based on several different reports from WSOC, WBTV, the Shelby Star, and Soap Boxy, there were several things missing. Her black school backpack, her black Tweety Bird purse, black sneakers, a pair of black Tweety Bird overalls, her favorite jeans with a red stripe down the side, and other personal items. Her house key may or may not have also been in her backpack. What wasn't missing were any kind of winter clothes, like her coat, hat, or even mittens. And it was in the mid-40s that night. Was this an I'm a kid and I don't think to prepare for the weather kind of thing, or was she not expecting to be in the cold rain for long? Everything that was missing looked like it had been packed and ready prior to her leaving. No one heard her going through drawers or stuffing things into her backpack. It almost looked like Aisha had run away, but from what? She didn't fit the bill, and it didn't seem like she had anything to run from. A lot of people have looked back at the fact that she lost that basketball game the Saturday before, or after the game where her mom told her that her leg didn't really hurt, and think it might be a possible stressor that led her to run away. But neither of those things were astronomical, out-of-the-norm events. And when you think about it, plenty of things happened after the basketball game that indicated that Aisha was completely fine and her normal, happy self. Like when she was laughing and joking at her brother's game, when she was dancing and watching TV at the sleepover with her cousins later that night, and the time she spent with family at church and lunch the next day. It doesn't seem like anyone can figure out why Aisha would leave the house, but she definitely did. And according to two, technically three witnesses, who called in the afternoon of her disappearance, she was alone when she left. WCNC reports that two separate vehicles passed Asia in the early morning hours of February 14th. The first vehicle passing her at 3.30 a.m. and the second passing her at 4.15 a.m. Both described a female wearing clothes consistent with what Asia was believed to be wearing that night, and both reported that they saw her walking in the same direction, south down Highway 18. Her mom told Jet Magazine that that was the same direction her bus drove in, so it was a familiar route for her. According to the Charlotte Observer, the first guy who passed her was driving a 10-wheeler truck. He said that she was wearing a little white dress, I can only assume this was her nightgown, white tennis shoes, and had pigtails in her hair. He told the outlet that it looked like she knew what she was doing because she was walking at a pretty good pace. This truck driver was pretty caught off guard by the fact that a nine-year-old seemed to be walking on a mission in the middle of the night in a cold, nasty rainstorm, so he turned back around to confirm that his eyes weren't lying to him, and they weren't. He passed her three times, telling the outlet that the third time he passed her, she veered off the highway and into the fog and darkness. Other reports say that she ran into the woods the third time he passed, but either way, after the third pass, she got off the road and away from any view of cars. Just because this is going to come up if you Google Aisha's case, a lot of people have thought that it's weird or creepy that he passed her three times, but mathematically speaking, that's the only number that makes sense. 
On the first pass, he wondered if he'd just seen a child, so he turned around. On the second pass, he definitely did see a child and had to turn around to go back in his original direction. That gives you three passes, and at that point, she disappeared into the woods or the fog and darkness. It looks like she probably stayed in the woods for some time because the second sighting of Aisha wasn't far from the first one, but was 45 minutes later. The second witness who saw Aisha was a father and son duo who were also in a truck. According to the Charlotte Observer, the two made a call over their CB radio to warn other drivers that there was a woman on the side of the road because they were worried that she might get hit. From what I can find, these two couldn't tell the age of the person they were passing, just the fact that she was a female. I can imagine that it'd be pretty hard to distinguish age when you're driving by at 55 miles an hour. The driver told the outlet that he thought the woman might have left her house due to a domestic violence situation, and maybe that's why she was out walking in the rain. It is widely recognized that the girl that all of these three men saw was, in fact, Aisha. Aisha's house is a little over 700 feet from Highway 18. Knowing she was walking south, she'd had to have walked about a half a mile to get to any large patches of woods. I say large because you can hide in them, but they're not something you'd expect to get lost in. And since we're talking about where she was seen and the distance it was from her house, let's do a little more map math. Aisha's dad saw her at 2.30 a.m. and this trucker says he saw her at 3.30 a.m. A website literally called the Calculator Site says that most adults walk about 3 to 4 miles an hour, making a miles walk about 15 to 20 minutes. Knowing Aisha was only 9 but was walking at a pretty good pace, we'll keep it at that speed. But factor in the cold rain and wind and it's probably a little bit slower. If she had walked about a half a mile before she was seen by the first witness, that would mean that she likely left her house a little before 3 a.m., which makes sense. If her dad checked on her at 2.30, she'd probably wait a bit to make sure her dad was asleep before trying to leave the house. Going back to those witnesses, a lot, and I mean a lot of people, have gone after them pretty hard with a couple of major questions. One, why didn't they call the police when they saw her? And two, why didn't they stop? So let's run through that. We're looking at this case through a 2022 lens, but it happened in the year 2000. In order to call the police from your vehicle, you'd have to actually have a phone to do it. And according to a study by the American Statistical Association, only 28% of people owned cell phones in 2000. And of those 28% of people, 11% also shared their phones with another member of their family. That means that there was only a 1 in 4 chance that any of these witnesses who saw her had a cell phone, and even less of a chance that they had it on them. As far as I can tell, neither of them did. That being said, the one witness with the CB radio did make a point to warn other drivers about someone on the road. Both of them called in their sightings on their own, and the Charlotte Observer reported that the first witness did take a polygraph test. As far as stopping to help Aisha, when it comes to the first witness, we've heard that Aisha veered off the highway and other reports that she ran into the woods. The woods version of events is the one that I've seen most commonly reported on. Either way, it sounds like Aisha was aware of her surroundings and that a strange vehicle passing her three times was enough of a red flag to hide from, regardless of the fact that she was alone in the middle of the night on a highway in the middle of a storm. The second witness figured it was a domestic violence situation and that it was a grown woman who chose to walk away from her house. 
Can you imagine if you had to leave your house in a cold rainstorm to get away from an abusive situation only to have two truckers stop and get out in front of you on a lonely, dark highway? That sounds like the worst horror movie ever. Going back to that first witness, Aisha's running into the woods makes it seem like she had the tools to spot red flags and respond appropriately. If the truck passing her is what made her scared enough to hide, whatever she was originally doing, wherever she intended to go, it doesn't sound like she was afraid of that. There aren't many places you can walk to from her house. It's a pretty rural area no matter how you slice it, north, south, east, or west. So what was her plan? Based on her preparation and packing, it does seem like there was an original plan in place. Was she expecting someone to pick her up? If they were, where were they supposed to pick her up from? If she was being picked up, was there a designated meeting spot? Because when a vehicle circled her on the highway, it looks like she felt like something wasn't right. If someone was supposed to pick her up, who was it? It's not like her nine-year-old classmates could drive. She hid from a truck that was circling her on Highway 18, so the possibility of a designated meeting spot is sounding more and more likely. If Aisha wasn't just aimly walking down the road to run away and she was meeting up with someone, who would she have trusted enough to do all of this and how did they gain that trust? My first thought was that she might have met someone online in an AOL chat room or something who pretended to be a child and they came up with a childlike plan. But her mom told Jet Magazine that they didn't have a computer and that was exactly why. So that kind of narrows down the possibilities by a lot. If she had planned to meet up with someone, it had to have been someone she personally knew or trusted, or, shot in the dark here, the old version of internet friends, a pen pal. Regardless of why Aisha left the house, where she was going, or whether or not she left to meet up with someone, the bottom line was that on February 14th, 2000, nine-year-old Aisha Degree was missing. According to the Shelby Star, police, search and rescue teams, and volunteers all band together to fan out and comb through the area surrounding her house and the areas along Highway 18 to see if they could find her or any trace of her. By that afternoon, the State Bureau of Investigation was assisting and a helicopter had joined in the search. The foot searchers had the advantage of seeing everything from the level of Asia, but those search and rescue helicopters have the advantage of using infrared technology. That can come in particularly handy when it's cold out. I've seen cases where they've been able to detect infrared footprints because the person's body heat was that much different from the temperature of the ground. But regardless of the intensive efforts of everyone in the community who took Aisha's disappearance as if one of their own children had gone missing, they found absolutely no trace of her. The search for Aisha came to a halt at the end of day one, but quickly resumed as soon as the sun came up the next morning. There wasn't a soul in Shelby that didn't know Aisha was missing, and as the word spread, people were told to check their properties and outbuildings for any signs of a child. And that's when they found something. I've seen conflicting reports as to whether or not this happened on the 15th or the 17th, but regardless of the date, just a mile from Aisha's house and about a half a mile from where the last witness saw her, a woman who ran an upholstery business out of her home decided to check her shed. 
The shed was nothing special. According to the Charlotte Observer, she kept some old furniture in it and a little mini tractor. And that's exactly what she expected to find when she opened the door. But to her surprise, there was something else. A yellow Mickey Mouse hair bow, an Atlanta Olympics pencil, a green marker, and some candy wrappers. They were Aisha's. Based on the items that were likely packed away in her backpack, Aisha had made it another half mile down the road or so before seeing the clearing this woman's house was on and into her shed. But why? How did she know the shed would be accessible? Was it just a lucky guess? Why this particular shed of all places? Was she just trying to get out of the cold rain? Or did someone tell Aisha to meet them there? It doesn't seem like this woman personally knew Aisha or her family. The candy wrappers on the floor of the shed make sense. She was a kid and kids eat candy, and it's not like there was a trash can set aside for her. But why were the other things left behind? Her backpack wasn't left behind, but a specific pencil, a specific pen, and that Mickey Mouse bow were. If she had taken the time to carefully pack her favorite things, why would she leave some of it behind on the floor of a stranger's shed? With all of the questions this new find opened up, there's one thing that I haven't mentioned yet, and it makes all of this even more confusing. Along with Aisha's bow, pencil, and marker was a small photo of a young African-American girl. It looked like it could have been one of those wallet-sized school photos that you had to carefully cut out of a sheet and hand out to the family members willing to fight over who gets to have a flipbook of you in their wallet. Now, you might think, okay, maybe Aisha had a picture of her friend in her pencil box or something. But when Aisha's parents were shown the photo of the little girl, they had no idea who she was. In fact, according to the Shelby Star, no one did. Not her family, not her friends, not even the school she went to. The girl in the photo has short brown hair, a say cheese grin, and is posed sitting behind a table or desk with both of her arms neatly folded on top of it. She's wearing a white button-up shirt with a dark-colored collar and it looks like she's wearing suspenders. A lot of reports say that the girl in the photo looks to be about the same age as Aisha, but honestly looking at it, it looks like she might be a few years younger, maybe six or seven. But the style of clothing and the background of the photo compared to other class pictures taken around the time, it does look like it was taken relatively recent to the time period of Aisha's disappearance. If the girl in the photo didn't go to Aisha's school and no one close to her had any idea who she was, how did Aisha even get the picture in the first place and why did she have it? If Aisha had left the house to meet up with someone that night, is it possible that that was who she thought she was meeting? Whatever happened to Aisha, those witnesses in that shed had now become a focal point of the investigation, and it was starting to feel like whatever the intended plan Aisha had for that night isn't what happened. And this was just the beginning. Next week, we're going to go over what happened in the years following Aisha's disappearance, what the FBI has released, and where her case stands today. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Aisha's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, or for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. All your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. 
And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you part two of two a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. Anybody who noticed, I had to say my two kryptonite words in today's episode, rural and drawer, please don't come at me.